Bozed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle to fight back and win against big tech. Very excited to have Sultan Megji with us here today. Sultan is the former chief innovation officer at the FDIC. He is also a fintech entrepreneur and also professor at Duke University. So you got a few things going on. Sultan, thanks so much for making the time and joining us here today. Well, thanks for having me, Alex. I'm excited to be here. You wrote this article in Bloomberg, Why I Quit as FDIC Innovation Chief. Agencies that protect the U.S. financial system assume that 20th century rules can be jury-rigged to cover 21st century technology. And this thing got a lot of attention. Could you tell us about it? You know, what what were you doing at the FDIC and, you know, what's some of the story behind why you uh, decide to put put this op ed together? You know, I've worked around the U.S. government and a bunch of different regulatory agencies for, you know, better than 20 years from my time, you know, working on the New York Stock Exchange to being in biotech and then to being in fintech and banking. And, you know, the farther we get into the 21st century, a couple of things really have popped for me. And it's one of the reasons why I joined the FDIC was the first is, you know, the technology is moving so quickly and it's advancing at such a pace and it's not coming through the traditional channels. You know, we don't, uh, you know, 30 years ago, you know, the joke was you couldn't get fired for hiring IBM. Well, now you can actually get hired, fired for hiring IBM. In fact, you probably should be fired for even considering it in most cases. Um and, you know, the technology is just moving so quickly and it's coming from smaller companies. It's coming from companies with 20, 30, 40, 50 people, you know, because the tooling has gotten better. The overall technology is just moving so rapidly. The second is, is the legal and statutory systems that most of the government operates inside of, you know, predate, you know, most of the uh most of the technologies we're talking about. You know, in the banking system is a great example. You know, we have something like 4,500 banks in this country, a slightly larger number of credit unions, and the vast majority of the systems they use to, you know, keep account of, you know, your checking account and your car loan and your mortgage are, you know, most of the time from pre-2008, in many cases before the year 2000. And so you have a huge technical debt that sets inside of the system. And so one of the things that, that got my attention and why I joined the government was to specifically look at ways of accelerating the ability of the government to not just respond to new technologies and the opportunities and threats they emerge, that come from that, but also to get proactive. There are a lot of technologies that are coming that you know the government is just completely unprepared for, especially as it relates to you know kind of protecting the normal lives of the average American. You know, whether it's the advent of artificial intelligence, which has obviously gotten in the news quite a bit recently, cyber uh, cyber crime, cyber terrorism, but then also things like cryptocurrencies and Web three and quantum computing. These are all things that are coming far faster than most people realize. And, you know, the government doesn't generally have the people, the processes or the technologies in place to deal with that. And so that's why I joined. And uh, and uh, and it was a an absolutely fascinating journey. I would never uh, take away that experience. But uh, but also, I think very quickly for someone who's used to working in in the private sector and in academia, you know, the government is, you know, slow as molasses would be uh, would be a positive way to talk about it. It's funny. I, I was reading this interview with this guy named Josh Wolf, who founded this VC firm called Lux Capital. And Josh and Lux have made a big push to get into defense and government, right? Like bringing yep. tech innovation and, and investment into, you know, these spaces that, as you're saying, right, have been just so archaic. And 
I was reading this article. This is his quote. If I were an enemy mole in the Pentagon, <laughs> instead of stealing anything that you guys are developing, I would make sure that you did nothing to your systems, Wolf told them, because they're that bad. You know, we we this is a great example. And, and I, I kind of agree with that, um, that quote. Um, you know, this is a perfect example of where, you know, we are using 20th century thinking. In a, in a 21st century environment. And, and the, my comment about tooling really applies here. So let's just say that you are a, you know, you are in a, a massive procurement part of the US government and you're used to buying $50 million fighters and you're used to running these big multi-billion dollar acquisition contracts, right? Great, but that's not how you buy cybersecurity technology in 2021, right? It's a totally different process you need. It's a totally different skill set you need. The procurement people aren't equipped to analyze the different offerings out there. And so guess what? We buy technology in the US government as if we were buying large-scale military hardware. And that's not how you do it. And there have been some innovations. You know, at FDIC, I, I, you know, I helped roll out a, a rapid prototyping uh, program. We started doing tech sprints. We started doing other things to kind of get small business engaged, get academia more engaged. But at the end of the day, you know, the procurement systems are not designed for that. They want to write the massive contract to the you know, massive tech company, to the massive consulting firm, you know, and you see a, you know, kind of all the bad behavior associated with that. And so what ends up happening is you have these massive technical infrastructures that are very static and stay static for decades. You know, the the NOTAM system from FAA, which has been in the news quite a bit recently, is kind of a big deal, right? It, went, it was in, installed in the early 90s. They aren't even thinking about rolling out a new version of it for another five years, at which point everyone involved in the process will be retired. And so they've all they've done is kick the can down the road. And you see a lot of that. I heard, by the way, do you think this is fake news that you see this rumor because we were talking about crypto before, you know, before we jumped on here, that that system was actually hacked and the U.S. government was being held hostage and then had to buy crypto to pay off the hackers. I've heard some great stories in my life. That one seems uh, pretty far out there. You know, maybe maybe not quite all the way to I'll sell you a bridge in New York, but it, it seems pretty close. <laughs> I, I've, I've heard that from a few. There was a yeah, there was a certain Fox News host who, who tried to who tried to sell that story last week. And I think I, I just the, the math doesn't work on that one, I don't think. So you're inside the FDIC. You were there for a little over a year and you were trying to make these changes and what you were just you were just meeting blockers and hitting walls at, at every step of the way or. Yeah, the way I've been talking about it is there are kind of three things going on. So first off is when I went in, you know, I worked with the chairman. I worked with, you know, kind of a, a kind of a cross uh, cross political, a political group of people to try to put a list together of things that we wanted to accomplish in my tenure there. And, you know, because I'm a, you know, I'm used to, you know, working in highly accountable environments, it's pretty simple. You say you're going to do 10 things, you do 10 things, right? <laughs> um, so we came up with a list of things to do. And, uh, and some of the things we got done very quickly, you know, we radically improved our ability to engage with the community, we radically improved the, the end user technology set uh, that the average staff member was using, you know, we got them out of the mid 2000s and got them into at least the early 2020s, right? You know, we, we made a lot of good progress. There's a lot of policy work, a lot of good cybersecurity work that we got done. Um, so that was great. Lots of great forward potential in areas that, that were, you know, kind of critical, if you will. The interesting thing is, just as there were things that went very, very well, there were things that didn't. 
An example would be, um, I am used to, in organizations, uh, giving people the opportunity to cheerlead their own organization. So, you know, maybe you get a sweatshirt with the logo of your organization or you get a coffee mug or something like that, right? Literally the entire time I was a federal employee, I was working through the process of trying to get better swag available to FDIC employees. And it was blocked on a daily basis by a bunch of lawyers. Um, because for whatever reason, they don't th- they didn't think it was a good idea, but because there's no accountability, no one ever said, I am Joe and I don't want you to do this. And here is why it was, you know, somebody told another lawyer, told another lawyer, told another lawyer. And then like the process just stalled for six weeks. Right. Um, so you had that kind of stuff as well. And the third is, you know, it is nearly impossible in Washington, DC to not be part of a you know, very aggressive, very confrontational political process between two parties that fundamentally have two, no desire to work together in many cases. And I was at a senior enough level that, you know, I was ended up spending, you know, the vast majority of my time, you know, in fights that had absolutely nothing to do with making the banking system safer or making the U.S. a more strategically important financial capital in the world or anything like that. It was much more make one party feel good, make another party feel bad and, and stuff like that. And for normal people like me who don't live and die by an individual party, it's a it was a little frustrating. And, you know, these are agencies, right, which are supposed to be apolitical, right, not get swept up into partisan politics and all that stuff. But you can kind of see that seeping into something like we you wouldn't think the FDIC is a. Uh, uh, you know, hyper political. Yeah. Well, I think in 20, in the 2020s, it, it will certainly, let's say in the 21st century, it, I can't think of a single part of the U S government that isn't fundamentally political in nature. Um, you know, and you know, the last chairman left because of a political fight, because, you know, you had a, a board and, you know, you had, you had fundamentally a disconnect between the two parties and kind of a big fight uh, that ended up with her resigning. And, you know, that's, that's fine. That's the political process. That's what we've, you know, kind of all agreed to do, but we need to accept the fact that not only do you have, you know, party A and party B and all the gray area amongst the, the extremes and the centrists on both sides, but then you also have a third group, which is the kind of lifetime bureaucrats. And, you know, it's, it's not really a, an A versus B group. It's an A versus B versus C fight. Right. So it's like a, it's like a tripod and, you know, tripods are pretty, uh, pretty unstable in some cases. So, you know, you were talking about the inability to bring new thinking into into this kind of digitally connected 21st century economy. One of the things that I feel like not squarely from the FDIC, but, you know, this one coming from the Fed, not actually a part of the government technically at all. But, you know, I know you were collaborating with folks at the Fed. Right. So, I mean, I feel like probably one of the biggest kind of quote unquote, digital things is this idea of the Fed launching a digital currency. Is that something that, A, you had any familiarity with, B, you haven't, you know, is that something that you feel like, you know, a digital currency, like hopefully you'd have some smart people like working on that to make sure that 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 doesn't get messed up. But do you have any exposure to that and any opinions on what's going on with that initiative? Yeah, so... Yeah, obviously, I've been very aware of what we call Project Hamilton, which was a collaboration between part of the Federal Reserve System and MIT to build a test system for a central bank digital currency. Obviously, very familiar with that. Um, You know, there is a a significant debate in the federal regulatory community about the value of a central bank digital currency um, vis-a-vis a a stablecoin in particular. That's a big debate right now. Um, So a stablecoin would be a 
digital currency that is pegged to the US dollar that is used by banks as an interbank payment system, a wholesale system, right? A central bank digital currency would be the system by which the Federal Reserve and the Federal Reserve banks move money from the Federal Reserve into those banks. So it would go from a central bank digital currency to a stable coin and then go through the banks and then live in the banking system exactly as we have money today. Okay. That's the structure that the vast majority of people in the federal government think should happen. And, you know, they're, they've got their sponsors in the private sector who are building versions of stable coins already. And there are a couple out there and, you know, all that good stuff. The use cases for a central bank digital currency are, are kind of problematic at the central bank level for the United States because of how our central bank is organized. You know, we don't have a central bank like the British do or the Germans do or, you know, any of the other major industrialized countries. We have a Federal Reserve Board that is a policy engine that is a separate, you know, technically part of the executive branch, but not. There's kind of a debate about that. There's actually a lawsuit about that right now that's really worth paying attention to. And then there are 12 individual Federal Reserve Banks all over the country. And those are the ones that actually operate the money. And it is it is very unclear as to whether or not any of the payments infrastructure that currently exists, some of which is incredibly old and very insecure, um, can be replaced by a central bank digital currency because there is no program yet. You know, they shut down Project Hamilton. It was an interesting case study, but not a piece of reusable technology. It's kind of slow and clunky and a bunch of other stuff. Um, it's not something that, that could even replace what was currently in the system right now. And so the question, and, and in the midst of all of this, there's a new Fed payment system that they've been working on for a decade that's about to roll out in the next year or two. Um, so the question is, what are the use cases? What's the value? What's going to happen? You know, my own personal opinion is I would not rely on a US central bank digital currency happening anytime soon. And I think if you're if you're thinking about doing anything in the space that requires the existence of that, go find something else to do for a couple of presidential elections. You know, you talk about technological transformation of America's financial system, focusing on modernizing modernization and confronting threats from, you know, folks like Russia and China. The thing that I saw with, you know, with the fallout from Russia and and the war and their invasion of Ukraine was yes we our banking system left Russia great we want to penalize Russia horrible thing that they've done but at the same time you've now created a vacuum in Russia that China has conveniently filled with their banking infrastructure and now we've we've actually brought these two frankly enemies of ours much closer together in a variety of ways, financial infrastructure just being one of them. Any areas that you see Russia and China or, or others kind of out innovating us in, in, you know, in the sense of financial modernization and, and these kinds of areas? Well, wow, that's a that's an incredibly broad question, Alex. Um, let me let me break it up into a few parts for you. So, first off, you know the U.S. is still the financial backbone of the of the entire world. You know, it's still you know fifty seven percent or something like that. Check my math on that. On uh, according to the IMF, of global reserve currency is the U.S. dollar. So that's you know the fundamental blood that makes the global economy operate. Right. That number is you know going down. Um, you know, it used to be as high as 80% and it just keeps kind of slowly getting chipped away. And there are a couple of reasons. One of them is the lack of financial innovation here in the United States, whether you're talking at the central bank level at the, you know, kind of G sub normal bank level or all the way down to, you know, consumer finance, we are not leading in those spaces. We have most of the capital, we have the payments rails, but that's really it. Um, so there is a tremendous amount of interesting innovation happening going on outside of the United States. In fact, when I look for interesting financial innovation, I generally look outside of the United States first. 
um, just as a, as a, you know, Hey, I want to hear about the coolest new stable coin thing. It's not going to be here in the U S it'll be somewhere else. Um, might not be Russia or China. In fact, in most cases, it's neither Russia or China. It's somewhere like, you know, the UAE or Africa or Singapore or parts of Europe, you know, they're, you know, Estonia is doing some really interesting work. ECB's got some interesting policy work going on. Like there's some good stuff. There's some stuff in Central America. There's some stuff in Philippines, you know, there's, there's activity there and it's non-geographic in nature. It's, you know, people with an idea working together across borders. Right. So that's kind of the first part of the first part, trying to answer your question. The second is, the vacuum comment, I agree with completely, by the way, you know, we, by removing ourselves from the global stage, make it easier for others to work against us. And let's be real. Most people want to work against us. Right. Um, it's like, nobody wants the U S to be in charge. Nobody wants the U S to be there. They always want to do a little bit more. And, you know, Russia and China are two great examples. The, the war crime of Russia invading, uh, Ukraine, which I just like, I cannot, I cannot be more strongly against that. And I really feel like we should be stronger. Like I want more tanks. I want, like, I, th I think this is like, you know, kick them out of Crimea and let's get on with the rest of the century. Right. Um, the, it has caused what is to me, one of the mo most terrifying financial innovations that we've seen, which is the creation of a stable coin backed on gold by the Russians and the Iranians to do payments for energy that, that bypasses the rest of the global economy. If they can actually prove that and get that operating and, and do that kind of stuff where they have now gone back to pre-fiat currency, asset-based currencies. So we went off of you know gold standard in 1972. If they can figure out how to make that a functional operation with a digital payments layer, with a strong asset sitting underneath it, with a digital payments infrastructure around it, and do it in a way that's kind of reasonably straightforward and reasonably cost-efficient, that's a terrifying standard to set because then all of a sudden there'll be 500 of them. And it won't be long before it's oligarchs hiding yachts and you know narco terrorists and the Iranian Revolutionary Guard doing terrible stuff, you know, and and you know you you and I are recording this on the Holocaust Remembrance Day, right? And the fact is is that when you hear about financial innovation coming from Iran, which has a specific desire to wipe Israel off the face of the planet, like that's a terrible thing. We don't want to enable that kind of behavior whether it's at a macro level for the state of Iran or at the tactical level with, you know, uh, terrorist organizations. I mean, yeah, the decoupling of making your payments for energy and oil and moving that off of these existing Fed or, or U.S. backed financial systems is something that I know not just Iran, right, but but China and, and all those actors have long openly professed is a is a, you know is a priority goal of theirs let's be like completely real about this you know one of the reasons the us was so dominant in the 20th century after the second world war was because we owned the financial rails and we owned the telecommunication rails right at&t built the technology motorola built the technology you wanted to use a phone in any country in the world you were touching american technology that was american innovation america you know and it was it was valuable to us from a you know, monetary perspective, but also from a political and diplomatic perspective, right? That has fallen away very quickly. Every single device that you and I are using to talk to each other, the number of them made or designed in the United States is tiny, right? Like, you know, look at where it's made in, you know? My phone is made in China. My laptop is made in Taiwan, you know? Or I should say People's Republic of China versus Republic of China, just to annoy my friends in the Chinese Communist Party, right? Um, you know, the, you know, but we're not building that in the US anymore, right? And so the telecommunications infrastructure has kind of faded away. You know, I loved it when we saw a bunch of de de democracies 
you know, working on this together, right? You'd see, you know, a, a German technology, American technology, British technology, you know, Western European, all the other D20 countries working together. That's great. Japanese technology, fantastic, right? Um, the fact is, though, we're now at a point where that's not where it's mostly being designed, mostly being built. I think this is one of the reasons why the CHIPS Act is so important, right? We still own the keys to the kingdom on chip design and how to build the machines that build chips. That is still a Western democratically owned you know, IP base. We have to maintain that and we have to start moving that manufacturing back into democracies. And we need to make that happen. So as we look to the 21st century, we need to reclaim telecommunications. We need to reestablish financial innovation on Western values, on Western rails. And we then have to then use that to create social impact like we did as well. You know, I was very lucky. I grew up in Western Europe as the wall, as the Berlin wall was coming down. I got to be there when they took down Checkpoint Charlie. Well, that was all about Levi's and Marlboro's. Like that's how you won the hearts and minds of Eastern Europe and the Soviets, which then allowed us to win the Cold War. Right now, TikTok, Snapchat, the things that really define the social constructs for the younger generations are all built run out of China with a fundamentally Chinese philosophy of centralization, data capture, and monetization built around it. Yeah. We don't have something similar to that on the Western side. I mean, we talk about this stuff on the show all the time, right? The need to get smart about banning TikTok. Now it's, it, it feels like there there actually is more bi- bipartisan support for it. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's still here. It's still operating, right? And we, we are just so sluggish to to do anything and to take any action. This, I mean, this is exactly one of the reasons why I I was happy for my time in government, but realized there was far more I could do outside the government that could actually get things moving faster. And, you know, being an advisor to America's Frontier Fund, which is very much about bringing semiconductor manufacturing back to the United States, you know, being in the in the venture space, you know, specifically investing in financial innovation here. I'm, I'm sitting in New York right now, you know, having just spent the morning, you know, meeting with really awesome American innovators who are trying to think about what we can do to modernize and secure the financial system far more than it's currently done. You know, this is a great thing for me to be spending my time on. But, you know, the 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 U.S. government is just really culturally not wired to do a lot of this stuff. I am incredibly hopeful that it is. I still participate in a lot of those activities. I, I fundamentally support them. But you also have to understand that, like, you know, our society needs to execute far more quickly than the U.S. government is currently capable of doing. I don't know how you change it. I don't know how you fix it. It's just such a behemoth juggernaut. Yeah. I mean, Alex, so here's the thing. Like I was deep into my forties before I worked for the U S government. And I have to tell you, like there, most of the people I know who go to work for us government go like right out of school and they spend a couple of years in there and they get frustrated. They can't get promoted fast enough. They see all their friends making more money and then they leave and, you know, go on to the private sector. And then they forget about that experience. It's a cool little thing on the resume, but that's about it. I really think that every single person who cares about an industry like this or cares about tech or cares about finance or life sciences or whatever, find a way every decade or so to go into the US government for a year or two or go into an NGO for a year or two. You know, 10 years ago, I went into an NGO for 18 months and, and did, you know, kind of, you know, basically fintech innovation in Africa. Okay. It was absolutely amazing. Got to see a whole lot of amazing work, got to meet amazing human beings doing awesome stuff, got to see an entirely different way of operating that fundamentally was focused not on me making money, but on having a positive impact in the community, right? That's how I think about my time at FDIC. And, you know, at some point I'll probably go back to the U.S. government if they'll have me. I don't know. The, the, the op-ed might have made that hard, but, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll do that. But I do think everyone should do it at a couple of points in their career. 
because that's how you start getting that cultural change. And you start bringing in people at every arc of their life with their different experiences, different values. And it's a far more equitable, far more diverse community than what we currently have right now. You know, the, the communities in the, in the federal bureaucracy aren't exactly diverse. <laughs> it's just kind of the, the good people just n- have natural attrition. And, yeah. you know, what are you left over with? You can't fire anyone. Tell me about it. <laughs> you know, you're kind of stuck. Were you able to fire anyone while you were, you know, in there? If you want you know, it's to, really, it's, I, I laugh. So I, obviously I, I'm still governed by, you know, confidentiality, a bunch of stuff. I will tell you that there was a, there was a situation where we discovered bad behavior in an employee. Um, I was not directly involved in this. I just discovered, I was told about it kind of after the fact um, over the water cooler. And it was someone who in any other situation, not only would I have fired them, but I would probably have called the police on them. And that person was not fired. You did not call the police on this person. And this person still works there. I'm, I'm, I'm to this day, I'm blown away by it. And if I'm ever allowed to talk about this story, I will, because it just makes no sense to me whatsoever. And then by the way, everyone now knows about this and it normalizes the behavior. It, you know, you, we talk about in, 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 right. You're also an entrepreneur and you're doing a bunch of cool things. And I mean, you think about culture, you talk about like, oh, a virus, right. If you have a virus that spreads through your culture. Well, that's an example of a really kind of fatal virus where you can not only have misconduct, but misconduct, which could be criminal, but you still have a job. Maybe you were reprimanded, but you know, really nothing happened. And I guarantee that's happened probably hundreds of thousands of times or millions of times. I don't know how many times, but it's just, how do you actually do anything? I love your idea. Hey, come spend a year, a couple of years kind of it's giving back, right? I mean, that's really what Congress was in the early days. Hopefully we could bring back term limits, but, or bring term limits in. Uh, But yeah, the idea was I go to DC, I do my time and then I go back versus now it's, it's not. Yeah. It's almost like a, it's almost like a, a whole little caste system that's been created. But I'll tell you, if, if someone is listening to this and they're, and they're kind of intrigued by this part of the conversation and they're, and they're, let's say, you know, not right out of school and they're thinking about ways of, of potentially jumping in and looking, I'm going to suggest two things. Okay. First off is pay attention to the federal registrar and sign up and get the alerts when agencies ask for something called an RFI. That's a request for information. I can tell you, I put out a bunch of RFIs when I was inside and I looked at every single one and it didn't matter if it was written by a guy in crayon who just was ranting from the top of a mountain or from a major public company or whatever. Not every you know lead uh, person in an agency or, or deputy or whatever will do that. But like I did, and I knew a lot of people did because they wanted that perspective. And so I would say if anybody does that and they hear about something they're interested in, maybe it's, you know, there's an RFI right out right now from Office of Science and Tech Policy about digital assets because they're starting to think about putting that agency together. Like put your thoughts in there. Write up a write up a well done couple page memo. It doesn't need to be more than that. You know, write up a couple of thoughts. Highlight one thing that you think is interesting. So that's number one. Number two is look at the Presidential Innovation Fellow Program. It is an absolutely amazing program run out of the White House. It is a nonpartisan group. It brings in some of the most amazing people, kind of mid senior in their career, who just want to take a year or two and come in and help out. Every single person I've interacted with from that program has been fantastic. And it's a way for someone to jump in without, you know, a massive bureaucratic program and all this kind of stuff. You're you're never going to make an amazing salary, but guess what? It's still better than, you know, 50 grand a year and you could do some real work and have a real impact. 
um, PIFs, we call them PIFs, Presidential Innovation Fellows, disproportionately got to do the interesting stuff and disproportionately got to play at a more senior level uh, because of the quality of the people that they brought in. So I would say if you're interested in that, absolutely do that. Yeah, those are those are great, very tangible suggestions. I'm, I'm looking at the PIFs now. It is such a cool program. The people are amazing. It's like, it is absolutely something anybody who is taking the energy to listen to a podcast like this should put on their radar. It comes in at the White House, but then you get to interact with all the various agencies as a result. So what are you doing now? Right. You said, hey, I got to go back into the private world. I can make a real change there. So uh, I'm doing a couple of things. So first off, I'm uh, I've, I've moved over. I'm a professor in the graduate school at Duke University, Pratt Engineering School, and I'm helping them to build and teach classes focused on Web three, cybersecurity, and artificial intelligence. I've been artif- I've been in artificial intelligence and cyber for a really long time. Web three, obviously, for you know a little over a decade now, um, and it's really about making sure that our educational system is modern. And it's making sure that the students going through some of the best universities in the country are learning the best stuff and getting access to you know the right things. So I'm spending a decent amount of time on that. I also have the opportunity to advise a number of younger companies, a couple of bigger companies, but then also help guide investment in really two big areas. One is financial innovation, and the other is what I would call industrial technology. And so, you know, semiconductors is a big piece of that. Fusion, quantum, you know, these are other areas we're working on. And the the idea is is to recreate the post World War II industrial boom with a digital lens, and so that's the thesis that I have: is we need to reset here as a country the kinds of investments we make and the kinds of things we're doing, and uh, and it's just so awesome to not be shouting into the void um, as I have in other parts of my life, but instead there's a great community of people who are about this. Um, you know, given where the market is, given kind of with everything going on um, in the world, the next two years are going to be an amazing time for people who want to get into early stage technology and in, and invest in real technology. You know, we're investing in a bunch of companies that are fundamentally going to spend two years building amazing technology. So just like in 2008, people spent a couple of years building technology and then you had Uber as an example, right? This is another moment like that. And it's, I'm very fortunate to be able to play the role that I play and, and guide some of these investments. But I have to tell you, we're going to finish remaking the financial system over the next decade. And we're going to get rid of so much of the friction, so much of the analog, so much of the, dis- the discrimination that's built into these systems because it's you know, designed for 1956 you know, and not designed for 2056. 2156, yeah, 2056, 2156, whatever, sometime in the future, right? Um, and uh, and then we have to start moving manufacturing back here. We have to get the things that we use on a daily basis built in this country. Um, and it is, you know, it is, we are, we are playing a hard game of catch up because we fundamentally haven't invested in this in 45 years. And we have to really get back to it. And you know, I don't want there to be a war because that's the last time we got really good at it because we had to reinvent our industrial base to support that war. And then we had all that manufacturing capability. And we're like, well, okay, let's stop making planes and start making cars. Great. We made the biggest car market in the world. I don't want that to happen. So let's figure out a way to do it without a war. Yeah, that'd be nice. That'd be very nice. You're, you're touching on all the right topics, man. These are all the right sentiments. It's just great to see that I think being shared more and more by by people in the country, right? I think, and on a, on a bipartisan basis, I think there's more and more alignment on these kinds of topics. So that's always great to see. And if there's any way that we can follow you going forward, how, how could we do that? How should we do that? 
Well, I'm, uh, I'm, if you can spell my name, it's, uh, it's pretty easy. First and last name, Twitter, you know, LinkedIn, all the, all the various things. Um, I'm on, I'm, I'm, I think I'm on kind of almost every single platform at this point. It's such a distraction, all of these different platforms, but. Um, Except for TikTok? Uh, no, I don't do TikTok or Snapchat. I tend not to do things that generally benefit the Chinese Communist Party directly. Um, so. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so no, it's, you know, t- Twitter or whatever, it's fine. Um, I also have a Substack. Um, that's probably moving forward the most interesting thing. If you want to get a sense of how I'm thinking and where I'm spending energy, I just launched it. So it's, it's early. I think I have like eight subscribers. So. <laughs> Awesome. Well, uh, well, Sultan, thank you so much for coming on today. It was, it was great having you. And I think you shared some amazing insights. You know, we wish you all the best and, and hope to stay in touch. Fantastic. Great to uh, chat with you today, Alex, and uh, love the podcast. Thanks for having me on.